Welcome to Practical Christian Living. The Holy Spirit is like the wind and it fills our sails. And when we become more and more attuned to it, we are directed and guided by the Holy Spirit. And somehow she knew that Jesus, or, or perhaps was being led, that Jesus was not going to have an anointment for his burial. And God made sure through Mary that she would honor him with this gift, with this worship. Something amazing happens when we worship Jesus with everything we have. And that worship is not only in song. Worship can be in act, as it was with the woman in today's passage who worshiped Jesus by anointing him with sweet perfume. Because she was being led by the Spirit, she knew she was actually preparing Jesus for his coming death and burial. Stay with us for more from John chapter 12, verses 1 through 11 with Robert Furrow, pastor of Calvary, Tucson. Martha was serving when Mary was sitting at the feet of Jesus. I don't know if Martha was serving uh, when four days after her brother had died, when Jesus showed up, but I kind of think she was. And here we're told that she's serving again. And Lazarus was one who sat at the table with him. Lazarus was fellowshipping with Jesus. And Mary, well, she's at his feet once again. And all three of these are so important for us. It's important for us to spend time at the feet of Jesus, learning his word, worshiping from him, bringing our grief to him, as we saw this last weekend. It's important for us to serve him, not to be worried about many things, right? There needs to be a balance there because some people are workaholics. And the other side, there's people who don't work at all. They're like, I'll just sit at the feet all the time. That's good. So a balance that we're doing what God's given us gifts to do and we're involved in it. And then, of course, sitting at the table and fellowshipping with Jesus. Each one of these are a part of what we're supposed to do. It says, Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped her feet with her hair. Now let's pause there for a moment because I want to reiterate, and I think that all of you guys that are listening to this understand that this is not the prostitute that cried on Jesus' feet and wiped her tears with her hair. I say that because people get this conflated and confused all of the time because of that story of that woman that had a bad reputation that came in and Jesus forgave her when she wept at his feet and wiped her tears with her hair and then Mary the sister of Martha doing this being confused with Mary Magdalene that people assume is a prostitute the Bible never tells us that Mary Magdalene was a prostitute by the way and when someone says well we just assume she's a prostitute I think that's not what you assume you assume she's not a prostitute. You don't assume that she's a prostitute. And so the prostitute that came in and cried at his feet, Mary Magdalene getting involved, and then Mary, the sister of Martha, and people have these accounts all messed up. So this is Mary, the sister of Martha, the brother of Lazarus. Every time we see her, she's at the feet of Jesus. And it says that she brings a very costly oil of spikenard. You know what this is? Some of you guys are going to like this. It is essential oil. It's exactly what it is. Spikenard is an essential oil. And it is very expensive. A pound of spikenard would be, and who knows these numbers? I mean, I was hearing that it was $15,000, you know, 30 years ago. So there's been a lot of inflation in 30 years. So I'm going to add some to that. It's like $20,000, $25,000, maybe more. It's an expensive thing. 
And that tells us a couple of things about the family of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. It tells us that they had money because they're living there together. She has this very expensive thing. Some have pointed out that this might have been part of her dowry. Perfumes and spices, frankincense and myrrh, spikenard, were ways that they held wealth in those days. And this might have been part of what she had been given, part of her wealth. And think about how extravagant it is for her to give that to Jesus. It's like the opposite of the woman giving in the treasury that gave two pennies. And Jesus said of her, she's given everything that she has. She gave more than anybody. She's given everything she had. I don't know. This might have been everything that she had. We're not told. But she gives this extravagant gift that is on the other side. And it is so extravagant that it shocks the disciples. So it is very expensive. And it says that she anointed the feet of Jesus. By the way, Matthew also tells us that she anointed the head of Jesus. So she anointed his head and she anointed his feet. Now, anointing with oil was done at specific times for specific people, but it was done most significantly for our account after death, before burial. You would anoint the body because they did not embalm in Israel. The way that they buried was to put someone in a tomb. They would lay them on a slab. That slab was not their final resting place. They would wait until time had done its job and there was nothing but bones and dust that were left. Everything had decayed. And then they would go in and they would gather all of those things and they would put them into a bone box. And they would put that somewhere in the tomb or somewhere in the cave. So you would have family members that their bone boxes would be there and that slab would be available to put somebody else when they had died. We're told that when Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus asked for the body of Jesus and received it, that they wrapped it hastily and then laid it in a new tomb that had never been used before. I believe that that new tomb would become the mercy seat, by the way. On that resurrection day, there would be two angels, one at his feet and one at his head, saying, why are you looking for the living among the dead? But think about it. The anointing of the body of Jesus wasn't going to take place until Sunday morning when those women were carrying spices and myrrh to the tomb. They were going to anoint the body of Jesus. Somehow Mary knew that Jesus was not going to be anointed. I think there could be a couple of things here. I think, first of all, Mary sat at his feet and learned from his word. The disciples had heard Jesus say many times, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be handed over to the Gentiles and they are going to kill me and I'm going to rise again in the third day. And the disciples would do something like, You're, they're not going to kill you. They just missed it completely that he was going to rise again. But Mary, who sat at his feet and listened to his word, somehow had some insight that none of the other disciples had, especially at this point in time. And it may tell us the importance of sitting and listening to his word, of really understanding it, of reading it daily, of applying it, of studying it, of memorizing it, that we would have an understanding of what God's doing. Mary did because of, I believe, because of that very reason. So it says that Mary took the pound of very costly spike nerd, which, by the way, is a lot, right? A pound? And Matthew tells us she breaks the bottle. So she didn't just give him some and then put it away. She gave him everything. 
she broke it and she anointed his feet and she anointed his, his head and she wiped his feet with her hair, which of course in doing so, she took on the fragrance of Christ. And some have pointed out that when we worship Jesus by honoring him, which is what Mary's doing. And by the way, this, this had to be an awkward moment. They're at dinner and they're hanging out and Martha's serving and here comes Mary. She's got her perfume. What's she doing by the feet of Jesus? Crack. And then she anoints his feet and wipes it with her hair and everybody in the room is kind of like, not quite sure what's taking place here. Not quite sure what's going on. It had to be an awkward moment. But there at the end of verse 3, it says, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. When we give our gifts to God, when we honor him who is totally worthy of honor, when we bow down before him and surrender our life to him, we take on the fragrance of Christ, which we really need. We want to be Christ-like. The church often has not been Christ-like. There was a book that was written probably 20 years ago now, maybe 25 years ago now, called The Day America Told the Truth. And it was all anonymous answers. Everybody answered anonymously, but they were encouraged to answer truthfully. They had a section on religion. And they asked people, what do you think about the church? The answers were overwhelmingly negative. The vast majority of people look at the church and don't like it. But then they were also asked, what do you think of Jesus? And the answers were overwhelmingly positive. There's somehow a disconnect from whom Jesus is and the world, how they see him and us who, is in, who are in the church and how the world sees us. The more we worship him, the more we gain his fragrance, the more we are like him. We want to have the love that he had. We want to get upset at the things he gets upset at. We want to be like Christ. That's what our name is, Christians, little Christs. That's what they were called, first of all, the Bible says, in Antioch. That's where we get our name. And so the room was filled with the fragrance of the oil. May we spend time really worshiping him. Now, if this were a little show, a little, you know, a little movie, then the scene would change and some ominous music would start to play. It says, but one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son. Oh, we all know Judas. Even the name Iscariot sounds bad, doesn't it? Judas Iscariot. Matthew tells us that all of the disciples joined in with him. So Judas is like the ringleader, and then all the other disciples are like, yeah, because what Judas says makes sense to our minds. Listen to what he says. Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, he lets you know, this is the guy that betrayed him. And we get some insight here, by the way, as to why Judas betrayed him. People come up with all kinds of different ideas. Have you ever heard of the Gnostic book of, of Judas? It's written in, I don't know what it was, two or 300 AD. And it was written in Coptic, which is out of Egypt, okay? And it says that Judas was in league with Jesus as two heroes. That Jesus had determined that he needed someone to die so he could die. And that Judas and him worked together. That's why he said, Go and do what you do quickly without telling him what it is. And he took it. It, it makes Judas a hero. That is definitely not what the Bible says. 
We might be torn because the Old Testament tells us that he would be sold for 30 pieces of silver. And the Old Testament tells us that one who ate bread at his table would betray him. Those, so these things are foretold. So Judas would do them. But I believe that God foretells what happens. God doesn't foretell and then make people do it. He, in his knowledge, he knows what Judas was going to do. And so he wrote of it beforehand. It isn't like Judas was this robot on this mission and that he, he didn't have choice like everybody else has choice. He had choice and he didn't need to waste his life. The Bible calls him the son of perdition, which means the son of waste. So why did he do it? Why did he betray Jesus? He says this in verse 5. Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denaries and given to the poor? Well, that sounds like, well, yeah. She just broke it and put it on his feet. That's a waste. There are hungry people out there that could have received this. Why wasn't it given to them? And the other disciples, as I said, Matthew tells us, the other disciples said, yeah, yeah, they all joined in. That makes sense. Maybe they looked at Jesus. Yeah, why'd she waste this? And then it says, then he said, not that he, um, this he said, not that he cared about the poor, but he, because he was a thief and had the money box, he would take money from, he was their treasurer and he would take money from it. And he, when he saw that this extravagant gift wasn't going to go through his hands so he could get what he wanted, he was upset. And when you read this account in Matthew, the very next thing that Judas does is leaves and goes and meets with the Pharisees and Sadducees and offers Jesus up. And they tell him, you look for an opportune time and we'll pay you. So before he ever went to him on the night that Jesus was arrested, telling him, I have an opportune time for you, he made his decision, went and arranged it already. And he did that after this event. And he did it for money. He did it because he could get the 30 pieces of silver, which was foretold. He did it because he wanted to get his hands on it. The, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And we find that here with Judas and it ends up destroying his life. He will bring the money back. He will take it, but he will bring it back and he will throw it at their feet and he will hang himself. So then it says, this he said because he had the money box and that he used to uh, take what was put in it. And Jesus said, let her alone. Jesus defended her. You leave her alone. It's not for us to judge what other people give to Christ. It's for people to make up their own mind when they are worshiping and not how they worship. It's not for us to be the agenda setters that determine how other people should worship. Let her alone. For she has kept this for the day of my burial. So Jesus knew maybe she was just being led by the Spirit and she felt like she needed to anoint the body of Jesus like you and I sometimes are led by the Spirit and we feel we should do something. It's not because God said in our ear, go and anoint the body of Jesus. It's because we're being led. The Holy Spirit is like the wind and it fills our sails. And when we become more and more attuned to it, we are directed and guided by the Holy Spirit. And somehow she knew that Jesus, or, or perhaps was being led, that Jesus was not going to have an anointment for his burial. And God made sure through Mary that she would honor him with this gift, with this worship. By the way, gifts are also a form of worship. We give to God. 
We, when we give him our lives, it's a form of worship. When we give to him uh, financially, it's a form of worship. When we give to the church, when we give to the poor, it's a form of worship on our part. And it ought to be approached by us that way. It was with her. And then he said, for the poor, you have with you always, but me you do not have always. Now, a lot of people have taken that statement of Jesus wrong, but he was simply saying to Judas, you can give to the poor right now and you can give to them tomorrow. But what she's done for me, she could only do here and now. He wasn't saying not to take care of the poor. He was saying that this is something highly significant and highly important. And what she did doesn't stop them from giving to the poor. See their accusation. People are going to go hungry because you gave that to Jesus. Jesus says, go do it, Judas. You have the poor with you always. Go feed them. You have them with you all of the time. Then Jesus says this, and this is found in the Matthew account again. At the very end of it, after he says that, you know, you, uh, you have the poor with you always, he says this, Matthew 26, 13. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial for her. So here we are. The gospel is being preached around the world from Israel. How does it feel to be a part of fulfilled prophecy? We are hearing the very thing Jesus said. We are honoring her for her honoring Christ. Jesus gave a lot of predictions, but think about this. Jesus is an itinerant preacher from Galilee with 12 disciples and maybe a total of 150 followers. In the upper room on the day of Pentecost, there were 120. Maybe some of them weren't there. This is a small group. And Jesus prophesies that the gospel is going to be preached all around the world. Jesus is a prophet. He's got other predictions as well. He predicted the destruction of the temple, that not one stone would be left on the other. And today, when you go to Jerusalem, you will walk along a part of the Western Wall where they have excavated the stones that were pushed off of the temple. And you can look at Jesus's prophecy that had been fulfilled. They were destroyed by Titus in 70 AD. And a couple of different campaigns later, about 125, they had all been pushed off the Temple Mount. And it was completely clear. Jesus also said in Luke 19:41 that Jerusalem was going to be destroyed, that it was going to be sieged. And it was going to be completely destroyed so that it would be not one stone would be left on another in Jerusalem. Josephus was actually there in 70 AD when it happened. He's a historian. His own words was that the Roman soldiers were so angry after four years of sieging the city. It took them four years to finally get in. That when they got in, they destroyed everything. He said it looked like an abandoned city by the time it was done very thing Jesus said, not one stone laid upon another. I think of Matthew 24, 14, where Jesus said, the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all of the world and then the end will come. Another prediction of Jesus. It's kind of like the prediction with Mary. Wherever the gospel is preached all around the world, they will honor this woman as a memorial to her. And so the gospel has been preached around the world. I think that these predictions of Jesus ought to be a great encouragement to us. That we ought to be encouraged by what God is doing today. 
Now, the passage also goes on to tell us that there were people who were there that had just come to see Lazarus. And then they went to the Jews and they plotted together with them how they could kill Lazarus because many people were believing. My final point in this study today is that there are some people who will not believe no matter what. Even if they see somebody risen from the dead, their plan was to kill the guy that was risen from the dead, as if Jesus couldn't rise him from the dead again if they killed him. But that was their plan, because no matter what, they wouldn't believe. See, Jesus preaches, shares, has come to us, has given us his messages so that we could believe. But there's another response, too. And most people have that response. They don't believe. And once they settle into their lack of belief, there's almost nothing that can be done. If you know someone who is a non-believer, then pray for them. Pray that God would have mercy on them, that God would bring them to the knowledge of the truth. Sometimes the most amazing non-believers have come to Christ. I think of Frank Morris, who wrote Who Moved the Stone? I think of Josh McDowell, who wrote More Than a Carpenter. I think of Lee Strobel, who wrote A Case for Faith. And all of these guys who were non-believers who set out to disprove God and their hearts were so moved that they became believers. God can do those things in our day as well. Let's trust in Him. A couple of things. It's not a bad thing for each of us to consider our worship and whether or not things are right between us and God. And are we bowing down before him? And of course, we're talking about in spirit, right? Hey, I don't think it's a bad thing to bow down before him. But we bow down before him in spirit. We're surrendering to him and that we are honoring him for all that he has done and for all that he is. And to make sure that we are open to the truth. Remember, we worship in spirit and truth. So many people get so invested in being right that they, they are not reasonable anymore. It's something that I have chosen to guard against over the years. I want to know what the truth is. If I get so invested in being right, then I might be blocked away from what the truth is. You see people all the time, when they start insulting you, when they're arguing with you, it's because they're so invested in what is right and you're starting to make sense. And you see it on the internet all the time. You see it in conversations on the internet all the time. People start attacking people because they're invested in being right. They just want to be right. They don't want to be proven wrong. We should want to know what the truth is and then follow after that truth because it's the truth that sets us free. Not a certain truth that we, that we hold dear, but whatever the truth is, that's our goal because we will know the truth, Jesus said, and the truth will set you free and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth and he's looking for those who will do it. Stand with me, would you? And let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you that we can take time to look at your word and to consider what it says about being worshipers. We thank you that we can come in and praise you and lift you up. And we know that when we do, we are worshiping you. And we know that when we open up our Bibles and we come with a right heart and we are listening to what your word says, that we are worshiping you as well. When we get up in the morning and we give you that day and we ask that you would use us and do things that day, we are worshiping you as we surrender our lives to you. You are our God and we lift you up. We give you honor because you are worthy of all honor, glory, and worship. 
And we thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. We pray that the Lord is speaking to you in a personal way here at Practical Christian Living. If you'd like to hear more of Robert Furrow's teachings, visit calvarytucson.com. For our local listeners, Calvary Tucson is open and holding physical services while being mindful of social distancing guidelines. Our East Campus at Speedway and Camino Seco meets Saturdays at 6 p.m. and Sunday mornings at 9.45 a.m. Our West Campus, south of Palo Verde and I-10, meets Sunday mornings at 8.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. Our midweek service times are Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. at our East Campus and 7.15 p.m. at our West Campus. If you prefer, you can watch our service online at live.calvarytucson.com and also on our Facebook page and YouTube channel. Our online campus is available during East Campus service times. If Practical Christian Living Radio has blessed you and you'd like to donate, please visit pclaz.org. That's pclaz.org where you can make a secure one-time donation or sign on to become a monthly partner on a reoccurring basis. Have you accepted Jesus into your life or have questions about salvation? Email us at saved at calvarytucson.com. And don't forget to follow us on social media, Instagram at Calvary Tucson and Facebook at Calvary Chapel Tucson. We want to remind our local listeners that you can watch Practical Christian Living Sunday mornings at 8.30 on Kagan 9 TV. May we walk worthy while we wait for the return of our Savior. Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living.